0: All right, welcome, everybody. So great to be here with you all. It's a little intimidating, uh, but it's wonderful to see you all here. I will try not to go too long because I know you want to find your future spouse, so I will, I will go slowly, but you can come up with a great question for the Q&A, and it will impress her or him. Okay, that's your, that's your motivation. Okay, so tonight, we're going to talk about... Uh, a little bit about temptation. And really what I want to do is I want to talk about jesus experience in the wilderness. Uh, it's really fitting. Yesterday, we celebrated the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. Great feast day. And the theme tonight I didn't plan this, Mary, and before I go further, I just want to thank Mary so much. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, And then thank you to all of you who did come out tonight. Um, Great to see so many people from Lord's here. If you don't go to Lord's, God knows why. Okay. Um, I also want to thank, if if anybody's here tonight, if you're not a Catholic, if a friend dragged you, or maybe you haven't been into your faith, maybe you're falling away, thank you for coming. We hope you have a great time tonight uh, and just enjoy the talk and enjoy some uh, time with other Christians. So, we're going to talk about Jesus and his temptations in Matthew chapter 4. It's also in Luke chapter 4. Mark has a very brief mention of it in Mark 1, but it's, it's less than a paragraph. Really, we're going to focus on Matthew chapter 4. So Jesus and his temptations. And there's a great line from Oscar Wilde. Uh, he has this wonderful line where he says, I can resist everything except temptation. And I love that line. And I can resist everything except temptation. Tonight, what I want to convey to you, very simply, if if you go to Lords, you've probably heard this before, but if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to live a Christian life, if you decide to do that as a mature adult, what it means to be a Christian is to go through the Exodus story. The New Testament on almost every single page assumes that you know the Exodus story. And if you don't know that story, you need to. Uh, The Exodus is what teaches us how to be Christian men and women. And Jesus is convinced of that. The gospel writers are convinced of that. St. Paul is convinced of that. And it's all over the New Testament. So we're going to talk about that tonight. Here's a few examples of that. What it means to be a Christian in the Old Testament, Egypt is the place of slavery. And I do this with my RCIA, so a little Q&A, little interactive here. Uh, In the Old Testament, right, the the Jews are in slavery in Egypt. Now, in the New Testament, there's a new slavery. What's the new slavery in the New Testament? Sin. Very good, right? Jesus tells us that if anyone sins, he is a slave to sin. St. Paul says the same thing in Romans. Okay, in the Old Testament, when the Jews are in slavery, the head kind of bad guy is Pharaoh, Who's the kind of big bad guy in the New Testament? Satan, right? We've got four good Catholics in the room. Good. Good job. Right? Satan's the bad guy in the New Testament. Okay. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's a redeemer that comes, and he redeems the Jews out of slavery. His name is Moses. Okay, one quick story. My roommate, Father Mike Rapp, who if you don't know him, you have to. He will shatter all of your conceptions of priesthood. Uh, Father Mike Rapp, we at our house for my community, the Companions of Christ, we have next door neighbors who are are Jewish people. I don't think they're practicing. I don't know. But he was trying to win them over. And he was like, hey, you know, Jesus saves, but Moses invests. And he was like, and then he he was like, Brian, they didn't like that. I'm like, of course they didn't like that. (laughs) What, What the hell is wrong with you? Okay, so anyway, so the bad guy, or the redeemer is Moses. If you get this wrong, you can't be a Christian. In the New Testament, there's a redeemer. His name is Mary. No, just kidding. Yes, Jesus, right? So Jesus is the new Moses. He's the new redeemer. Uh, Okay, so in the Old Testament, the Jews escape from Egypt, right? They're released, and uh, there's two ways they're released. I don't want to go too deeply into this. But they're freed from slavery by the 10 plagues, Right? Pharaoh releases them after the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son. And then, in Exodus chapter 14, he changes his mind and he sends his army after them. And they're about to be captured, but they escape the army through what? The Red Sea. Moses parts the Red Sea. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, St. Paul tells us that we have a Red Sea. What's, What's the Red Sea for Christians? How do we get out of Egypt? Baptism. And it we go on and on and on. We'll do a couple more here. But here's my point. And it's not my point, it's St. Paul's point and it's Jesus's point. Is that what it means to be a Christian is that all of us lived in Egypt, which means that sin made us slaves. And this great Redeemer came to save us, right? His name is Jesus. And Jesus saved us, and He saved us, and He freed us from Egypt in the waters of baptism. Right, which is why Peter can say in 1 Peter that baptism saves us. All right, so St. Paul can say in Romans chapter 6 that we, are, we get the promise of resurrection through baptism. That's why Jesus commands us to be baptized in Mark 16 uh, and in Matthew 28. Baptism saves us. It gets us out of Egypt. So when the Jews get out of Egypt... They cross the waters, and they're on their way. Where are they going? The promised land. What's our promised land? Heaven, right? We're on our way to heaven. We're going somewhere. But they're not there yet. And this is where Catholics and our uh, Christian brothers and sisters differ a little bit, is that a lot of people in in our non-Catholic Christian communities will say, well, you know what? If you believe in Jesus... You know, you're saved out of Egypt and you're there. You're in the promised land. You're going to heaven, that's it. But that's not what the Old Testament says and it's not what the New Testament says. right? When the Jews come out of Egypt, they're in a desert and they spend 40 years in that desert. And here's, I have really good news for you tonight. The Christian life is a desert that's going to last your whole miserable little life. Right? Amen. I. This is why people don't go to lords. <laughs> forty years in the desert, but that's but that's in the Bible. That is a generation is forty years, and if you're really living the Christian life, oftentimes it feels like a desert. And if you haven't encountered that, you you might be new. And it's it's a hundred and it's a thousand percent worth it, but it's not easy. And if you've been walking with Jesus, you know that sometimes it's like a desert. Okay, so what does this have to do with what we want to talk about tonight? Here's what I want to talk about: is that Jesus, one of the best lines, one of my favorite lines in the New Testament is from Romans 1:17. In Romans 117, St. Paul says this. He says, He says, in the gospel, right, in the 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 good news of our salvation, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's a complex line. He says, God's righteousness is revealed. It's, it's manifested. It's it's unveiled. He actually uses that word apocalyptic apocalypse. The word apocalypse means an unveiling. I had a gal in RCIA years ago that when she found out that that word apocalypse means it's when a bride removes her veil at a wedding. And the the book of Revelation is about the church, and it's the unveiling of the bride. But anyway, this this girl Shannon in RCIA, she said, Father Brian, when you do my wedding and my dad removes my veil, you will announce the apocalypse of Shannon. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, anyway, so there's a revelation, and so St. Paul tells us that in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, and he has this weird phrase. He says, Ekpisteos es pistein in the Greek, which means from faith for faith. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. What St. Paul means by that is, is simply this, and let me tell you a story. When you're going to do something difficult in your life, don't you want someone else to go first? That means yes. Yes, you do. Right? I always want that. If I have something difficult that I have to face in my life, it helps so much to have someone you love, someone you trust, who goes before you. Now, I'm a middle child. Uh, I know team psychological disorder <laughs> and the great news about being a middle child is that my older brother went first and it was it really was it was a tremendous gift so my brother Sean you know when when you're an eighth grader and like you know I was I don't you guys probably weren't but I was just kind of nervous about fitting in like Oh my gosh! High school. Am I gonna fit in? You know, and I was like five foot nothing and like you know three hundred pounds at that age, and like and I just and I was really socially awkward and shy and I just didn't. Oh, I was so nervous. But my brother had gone. I was like, okay, Sean made it. Like it's gonna be okay. Uh, my brother taught me how to rock climb, and he was a horrible teacher. He used to. I'd be stranded up on the side of a rock. And I would always yell down and I'd say, Sean, where do I go? And he would always say the same thing. Exactly, up. You go up. The first time I went rappelling, he took me to a place that had a huge overhang. You don't do that when someone's on their first a Horrible idea. But Sean went first. And he made it to the bottom, and I knew it was going to be OK. One more story about going first, one of my favorites. My senior prom in high school. Got snowed out. I know, please go to prom. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Let me tell you, I was a hot ticket in those days. (laughs) Actually, no, I wasn't. But anyway, so my senior year, our prom initially got, we had this huge snowstorm, and it got snowed out. And my best friend lived across the street from me. And uh, that year, uh, while prom was supposed to be happening, we sat in his hot tub on his back deck. And we couldn't see. It was just this huge blizzard. And we, I don't know how many feet of snow we got. But we decided, we were kind of bored. We we're like, let's jump over the deck into the snow, right, out of the hot tub. This is what men do. Ladies, you sure you want to be married? Like, <laughs> consecrated virgins, pretty awesome. But we would jump off the deck into the snow. But we, every time we did something, we did a rock, paper, scissors for who goes first. And Eric had to go first. It was awesome. It really helps when someone goes first. And so St. Paul in Romans 117, when he says the righteousness of God, what does the righteousness of God mean? And here's the question for tonight. The question is, is God faithful? That's the question. And you, you, I know you all know the answer is yes, but do you really right? It's so much easier to live a non-Christian life. And the question every one of us in this room should have, I certainly have it. If you're living the Christian life, it's challenging, it's difficult. And the question should be, Jesus, I'm trying to be a good priest. I'm trying to be a good Christian. Are you going to be faithful? And the righteousness of God, if we had two hours, we would go into what that means in the New Testament in a deeper way. But really what that means, the righteousness of God means God is faithful to his covenant with his people. That's what it means. God, are you going to show up or not? Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Really, though? Because what it looks like is the person who's not living a Christian life is the one who's blessed. They're growing in power and wealth and pleasure. And I'm at theology on tap. <laughs> right, actually, this is pretty cool. But you see the question. So here's what I want to show you tonight. When we go back to Matthew chapter 4, with the temptations. What it it means that God's righteousness, his faithfulness to you is revealed in the gospel, and Paul says, from faith, for faith. What that means is very simple. All it means is that because Jesus was faithful, that means that I can be faithful. Because he went first. And he showed me in his life of faithfulness In Greek, the word faith, pistis, it can mean faith as we think of it, believing in God, but it equally means faithfulness. And so my faithfulness as a Christian and my struggle to be faithful, to face my temptations, is possible because Jesus showed me first that he is faithful. Okay, I have two minutes left on this talk. No, just kidding. So let's break this out just a little bit. There's really just, what I want to do first, I want to give you a principle for facing temptation in your life that comes out of the story in Matthew chapter four. And then I want to walk briefly through the three temptations that Christ faces. So the first one is this. The first, and I want to give credit where credit is due. I stole this from a, a group called the um, Institute for Priestly Formation. And this was really helpful. And what they say is they say that in our lives, there's, there's this acronym, R-I-M, RIM. And what that breaks into is Relationship, Identity, Mission. Okay, So everybody say that with me. Relationship, identity, mission. Ready? Relationship, identity, mission. Okay. That's the way our lives are meant to flow. Your identity is hugely important. Right? So when I meet with people all the time, the struggles that you and I face are about our identities. Am I really loved? Am I really lovable? Do I really have a purpose? Who am I? And we do a great job of faking it that we're like, I know who I am. I'm really cool, right? I'm the really beautiful one. I'm the really smart one. I'm the really intelligent one. But almost all of us really doubt those things at some point in our life. So in Jesus' temptation, yesterday was the feast of the baptism of the Lord. And it's so perfect. God is so good the way this talk providentially worked out is that what happens so oftentimes in our life is we think that our mission is our identity. Right? We think that the things we do tell us who we are. And that's a lie. It's so easy to think, right? And I'm, I'm tempted by this. I am tempted to think I am only, I am so good as my sermons are. I am only as good as, I, as my success and my mission is. And then when we fail in that, right, when things collapse, then the natural conclusion that we make in our minds is, if my mission didn't go well, that means that I I'm not good. My identity is not good. And then, right, we, we do it backwards. We go, we make an M-I-R. Our mission fails. Therefore, my identity is not good. And therefore, God can't really love me. So yesterday on the feast of the baptism of the Lord, Jesus is baptized, the heavens are opened. And the last verse of chapter 3 in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3:17. God speaks from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am am well pleased. That's an identity. Jesus' identity is not what he does. It's who he is. It's his relationship with God the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the end of Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 4 starts, and if you know scripture, you know that the chapter divisions are a medieval invention. We put those in there to help us find places in the Bible. But Matthew didn't write chapter divisions. So it goes into chapter 4, and Jesus is led into the wilderness Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. My my friend, Dr. Tim Gray, says that is the biggest understatement in the entire Bible, right? Like, after 40 days of not eating and drinking, he was hungry. Thank you, St. Matthew. (laughs) The other one, one more line drop. Curtis, I've been privileged to know Curtis Martin, and Curtis, one time I said something like that, and he goes, "His father Brian, um, you know, you really shouldn't name drop." Pope Francis told me that. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, if you haven't gotten that, give it a minute; you'll get it." <laughs> so here, but here's what I want to get to: so identity, right? Our identity comes from our relationship, and God came to make us sons and daughters. He right? came to make you a beloved son, a beloved daughter. The day you were baptized, God looked down from heaven and he said, Behold, this is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. And that's who you are. That's who you are. You are not an accountant. right? You are not someone who's employed by the Archdiocese of Denver. You are a beloved daughter or a beloved son. And if you start doubting that, if you put your identity in something else, you will find tremendous heartbreak and tragedy in your life. The only thing that's worthy of you is your your relationship with God the Father. I am not, my identity in its deepest level is not that I'm a priest. It's that I am a baptized Christian, which makes me a son of God the Father. That's who I am. So Satan tempts Jesus three times. And the first thing he says is he says, if you are the son of God, command the stone to be turned into bread. Right? For it is written, um, and I'm blanking here. I promise I know scripture. Man. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Oh, that's as far as he goes. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. The second temptation, he takes him to the top of the temple, and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will give his angels charge of you, and he will lift you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answers him, and he says, it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, did anybody notice there's, there's a similar thing to those first two temptations? How does Satan word his temptation for both of those? If you are the son of God. Thank you. Good job. If you are the son of God. So Satan, look at how he tempts Jesus. The last verse of chapter 3 says God speaks from heaven and says, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the first thing Satan goes after is that identity. If you really are the Son of God, turn this stone into a loaf of bread. If you really are the Son of God, cast yourself down. Put God to the test. And if you pay attention to the voice of the evil one in your life, he says the same thing to you. All right, he's going to say to you, If you really are the daughter of God, if you really are the son of God, you wouldn't have committed that sin. If you really are the son of God, right, you would be a much more impressive Christian than you are. This is how Satan works he goes after our identity. Okay, so the first two temptations, Satan says that. If you are the son of God. The third one, he takes him to the highest mountain in the region. and It says a very high mountain. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan says to him, if you are, or he didn't say if you are that time. He says, all of these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus, again, quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God, and him alone shall you worship. Okay, so what does this have to do with us? The desert, the time that Jesus spends, he spends 40 days and 40 nights. The number 40 in the Bible becomes in 40 years is a lifetime. It's a generation in the Bible. If you're going to be a Christian, what it means is it means you've left Egypt. Egypt is the world. If you want to be like everybody else and you're still living a life like everyone else, you have not yet left Egypt and you haven't actually yet tasted what it means to be a Christian. You have to leave Egypt. You have to be different. And that first temptation to turn this stone into a loaf of bread. What it does, if you read the context of that, it's from Exodus 16, where God rains down manna from heaven. What happens in that chapter is that the Jews run out of food. And here's here's the lesson of this. In the same chapter, God gives us the manna from heaven. Here's the lesson from that. If you go to Mass and you receive the Eucharist, but God waits to give the manna to the Jews until they've run out of worldly food. If you are living for pleasure and power and pride and all the things the world does, you'll never appreciate the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the food for those who have left Egypt. And if you've left Egypt, the Eucharist will transform your life. But if you haven't, you're going to do what the Jews do in Exodus 16. And what they do is they say, they get hungry. And they say, you know what? We want to go back to Egypt. And they say, we had food there. And so it's a funny thing. They say, they remember they had flesh pots. They say, we had flesh pots back in Egypt. And they talk about onions and leeks. You know I'd choose a different menu. But that's what they longed for. So I have days. And here's the first temptation. If you're a Christian, if you've left Egypt, you've been baptized, you're walking, you're following Christ, the first temptation all of us have is to go back to Egypt. I call these my flesh pots of Egypt days, literally. And what I mean by that is, I just—it's too hard to be a Christian. I'm hungry, and it's too hard, and I'm in this desert, and I'm like, you know what, Lord. And and if you go to Lords, you know this. If you don't go to Lords, you might be scandalized by me tonight. I'm sorry. I'll pray for you. Um. But, but the days where I'm like, it's too hard to be a priest. It's too hard. It's too much. I can't give anymore. My flesh pot of Egypt days, I just say, Jesus, I love you, but I'm moving to Telluride, and I'm going to date a beautiful woman and have a dog. <laughs> right? Like, that's I'm going to have a big dog. We're going to run trails together. I'm going to be a ski bum again. And I'm going to live in Telluride. That's it. That's the first temptation. The world gets to do whatever the world wants to do. It's hard to be a Christian. The second temptation, right, is uh, God's going to test, Satan's going to bring God, Jesus, to the top of the temple to put God to the test. That's Meribah in Exodus 17. They put God to the test. You know that tacky, like, responsorial psalm we sing? I can't sing. If today you hear his voice. How does that go? Well, I know the words, but I mean the melody. (laughs) Well... Voice, harden not your hearts. Right? I've heard that since I was like two years old. You're like, I know, harden not my heart, whatever. The second temptation is to say, is to be in the wilderness and your life's a challenge, and you say, God, if you're with me, you will give me X, Y, or Z. And you'll make my life the way I want my life to look. The problem with this is you make yourself God and you make God a creature. Right? We're the ones who need God. God doesn't need us. He loves us. He cares for us. We do not put him to the test. We have faith. When you say, God, if you really love me, you'll make my life look like this. What you're doing is the opposite of faith. Faith says, Lord, I trust you. And it might not look, in fact, I guarantee it won't look how you want it to, but a person of faith says, I know you know better, God. One last note on those two, when, when Satan says, if you are the son of God, Jesus is showing his fidelity to God the Father. He's showing that it is hard, but you can be faithful. The only other time in Matthew's gospel we hear that phrase, if you are the Son of God, is when Jesus hangs on the cross. And the passerbys look up at him and they say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And there's a profound lesson for us there as Christians. Right? To be a son or a daughter of God enables us to trust him. And Jesus didn't have to have his life go the way he wanted it to go. He lived in total and complete surrender to God the Father. The last temptation right, is they take, Satan takes him up to a high mountain. And here's the, the other lesson tonight. Satan goes after our identity, our identity is the first. The second one is this. In the third temptation, Satan offers to Jesus the thing he wants more than anything else. So Jesus' number one topic in all of the Gospels by far is What? Thank you. You must go to Lourdes. Just kidding. Yeah, the kingdom of God. Usually people say Jesus must talk about heaven the most. Nope. You might, well, hell. No. Nope. Love, no. Faith, no. By far, more than any other topic, Jesus, what he preaches is the kingdom of God. And in Matthew chapter 4, the greatest temptation is Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Which means, you know, everyone, there's a word in Greek for that. It's called Catholic. It means universal. Everyone. Jesus came to found a universal kingdom. A Catholic church is why Jesus became a man. And Satan offers that to him at the, the height of the temptations. And Jesus says, You will love the Lord your God, and him alone shall you worship. And the lesson for us is very simple. The lesson for us is that you and I, when we see something we really want and something good, Satan will tempt us not. If you're a good Catholic, he's not going to tempt you with evil things, right? I hope no one in this room tonight is tempted to assassinate me, right? Right? If you are, repent and believe in the gospel. (laughs) But you're not tempted to that. You're tempted to something really good. You're tempted to something that that God wants for you. But Satan's going to twist that so that you go for it, a very good thing, in the wrong way. And that's a huge temptation for every single one of us. Right? I can have that as a priest. I can say, Lord, I know you want people to be Catholic. I know you want your kingdom to spread. I know you want people to love you in the Eucharist. But there are the right ways to do that and there are wrong ways. And not every way of spreading the faith is a justifiable thing. Jesus knows that. One final thing on that is that This is why, in Matthew 16, Jesus calls Peter Satan, right? So in in Matthew 4, right, he he says, go, be gone, Satan, is what most translations say. But in Greek, it's the same word, hupage, go away, be gone. He says that to Satan in Matthew 4, and he says it to Peter in Matthew 16. Why? Because Peter offers Christ the same temptation Satan did. Jesus has just established the head of the church, the prime minister, if you want to learn more about that. There's lots of talks out there about the Pope as the prime minister. But he's establishing his kingdom. But he knows the only way it'll ultimately be established is when he dies on the cross. And so he sets Peter up as the the first Pope. and And then he says, right after that, he says, He tells the apostles, now I have to go to Jerusalem to be tortured and to surrender my life. And Peter rebukes him and he says, this can never be, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter is saying to Jesus, Lord, you can be the king. You can be the Christ. You can establish this universal kingdom without the cross. But Jesus knew better. So I have a whole nother section, but I've already gone long, so I'm going to cut it off here. But tonight, right, I want to just finish and go back to Romans chapter 1, 17. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And the question you should have, again, if you're living a Christian life, if you're striving, if you're working to become the man or the woman that God created you to be, it's hard it's really hard. It's much easier to be like everybody else. And you're going to suffer. It doesn't sound awesome to be a Christian. <laughs> I don't know why anyone came tonight, but thanks for coming. It's been fun. Um, if you're going to be a Christian, there's going to be trials and temptations. And the question is God, are you faithful? Can I endure the loneliness of the desert? Right? Can, I, can I make it through this hard time? Can I live a moral life when none of my friends do? Can I really follow you? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Jesus, for your life, he shows you the reason he suffered in the, de- in the desert, the reason he suffers on the cross, there's multiple reasons, but a huge one is, is to show you that you can be faithful. You can walk in the wilderness and you can know that God the Father is with you. You can trust him the way that Jesus did. You can face trials and temptations and sufferings as long as you have that deep faith in God. Let me leave you tonight, and we'll do Q&A, but let me leave you with a quote from Origin. Origin says this, and he's talking about the same theme. He's talking about the Christian life as the Exodus. He says this: He says, Do not be afraid of the loneliness of the desert. And let me just insert one comment there. I am afraid of the loneliness of the desert. The biggest fear in my life is that I will not be loved and that I'll be alone. And I know it's yours too. That's my biggest fear. And I'm scared to leave Egypt because what if I'm alone in the desert? Do not be afraid of the loneliness of the desert. For when you live in tents of this kind, or the Jews lived in tents, the manna from heaven will come and you will eat the bread of angels. Just get started and do not, as we said, let the loneliness of the desert frighten you. God, our Father, we bless you and praise you. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Jesus, I pray for all of them. I pray that they may know their identity they have in you, that they are sons and daughters, that they are loved and that they will never listen to the evil one when he attacks that. I pray that they would resist the temptation to seek good things in the wrong way. But Jesus, I pray that all of us would have the faith to leave Egypt, to not be scared of that loneliness, and to follow you into the desert. We entrust our lives, our faith to you through the prayers of Our Lady. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. Do we have any questions from the audience? If you could raise your hand or come up to the front, cross the sea of people. Father, you touched a lot on um, how the devil is specifically attacking Christians and Catholics. Um, could you comment briefly on what you see overall in society in terms of his, his strategy in this particular era? Is it mostly distraction? Is it um, you know all the social media stuff, or um, what do you? I mean, you, you probably observe of this. Yeah. So I think I think in our culture, it's it's it it's new and it's also never changing, right? There are new things. I do think all of us know this, right? I don't think anybody in this room believes they need more social media in their life. That is new. Distraction, though, has always been part of of that plan. St. Augustine talks about that in his youth. And he talks about how he had all these friends and he was distracted all the time. Uh, And he refers to that time in his life as Babylon. But I do think, think the biggest thing, so for people who are not in the church, The biggest thing, and we all know that, I hope you know this, people who have not yet found Christ do not need to be convinced about rules, right? What they think about Catholics, they think it's all law. And one of the points I wanted to make tonight, so thank you for affording me the opportunity, is that God loves the Jews before he gives them the law. If you know the Exodus story, God does not say to the Jews when they're in slavery, hey, by the way, here's these 10 commandments. When you get them down, it's going to be awesome. There's going to be these plagues. It's going to be great. We're going to get you out of there. He doesn't do that. God saves them first. He saves them first. He saves them first. He saves them first. People do not have to get their lives together to be loved. They don't. They need to know, and we have to be messengers to people outside the church, that they are loved, and they're desperate for that. They are loved, and they are loved before they can do anything. And then because God loves you after he saves you, He says, here's a law, because I love you, just like a mother or father does for their child. Those are people outside the church. For us, inside the church, it's always been the same. And I really do think it's those three big things, right? I want to go back to Egypt. And and maybe the last comment I would just make on this is, St. Augustine says the entire Christian life is about growing the right kind of love, Right, Being a Christian does not mean just I'm going to stop doing the really, really, really bad things. That's great. You should stop doing the really, really bad things. Much more important is that you grow to love. And so if, if if there's one temptation in your life, it's going to be to love God less. I could go on, but I'll stop there. Any other questions that came from the back? Oh, yes. Can you come forward? Can you repeat the origin quote? Yes, origin. <laughs> So Origen says, and Origen's a third century church father. He's, he's one of the most influential Christians in all of history. He's up there with St. Augustine in terms of his influence. He says this, he says, Do not be afraid of the loneliness of the desert. For when you live in tents of this kind, the manna from heaven will come, And you will eat the bread of angels, right? When you when you leave Egypt and you're scared of loneliness, right? God's going to come and He's going to rain the manna from heaven, the Eucharist, the bread of angels into your life. Just get started, and do not, as we said, let the solitude of the desert frighten you. Awesome. Any other questions? Okay, let's give Father Brian another round of applause. Thank you.